were binary. So when I was at Storyblocks, I was working way too hard. So what did I do? I stepped out of Storyblocks and didn't work at all. I went to the complete other end of the spectrum. And, and it was, again, like really fun at first. But then after a year, uh, I started floundering because I didn't have a purpose. Hey, this is Heath Padgett, and welcome to the RV Entrepreneur Podcast, episode 157. Today's episode is with Joel Holland. Joel is the CEO of Harvest Host and former founder of Storyblocks, a 100-person company focused on providing high-quality stock media footage. I've got to know Joel this year as a fellow RVer and since he bought Harvest Host, which is one of our favorite camping memberships we use while on the road. If you've never heard of it, Harvest Host has over 600 locations across the country where you can camp for free on farms, microbreweries, and wineries. This past fall, Alyssa and I were driving down the East Coast and it was like long stretches of drive days and like eight o'clock one night, we pulled into a brewery in Gastropub somewhere in the middle of Pennsylvania. And Alyssa claimed that she had the best burger of her entire life and it just set the bar really high. So it's not just wineries, it's a lot of really cool places uh, that you can camp at, unique campsites all over North America. And as a thank you for Joel coming on the podcast and because we're huge fans of Harvest Host, uh, Joel gave us a 10% discount that you can save for your annual membership if you use the code RVENTP10 at checkout. That's a lot of words. I'm going to say it again. RVENTP10 at checkout at harvesthost.com. Annual membership is 49 bucks. It's totally worth it. You can save that within a couple days on Harvest Host if you don't buy too much wine. In today's episode, we talk about how Joel went from interviewing people like Elon Musk when he was in high school, doing his own show before YouTube, uh, to starting Storyblocks when he was in college, growing it to tens of millions of dollars in revenue, and then promptly getting burned out and selling all of his shares to go live on the road in his RV. We talk about ways that Joel is striving to not reach that burnout point again in his life and what led him there in the first place as he's starting over with a new company that he acquired earlier this year, which is Harvest Host. All right, let's get into today's episode with Joel Holland. All right, today on the podcast, I have Joel Holland, who is the CEO of Harvest Host, a membership network that connects our viewers with unique overnight experiences at 600 plus wineries, farms, breweries, museums, and other awesome places. This is something Alyssa and I have used a ton on the road, so I'm excited to geek out and talk a little bit about it today. He's also the founder and executive chairman of Storyblocks, which is a one-stop shop for high-quality stock media and the first subscription-based platform in the industry for high-quality creative content like stock video and production music. Joel has also been featured on the 30 Under 30 list by Entrepreneur, Young Entrepreneur of the Year by United States Small Business Administration, and a lot more accolades that would make this intro entirely too long. Joel, thanks for being on the podcast, man. Hey, Heath, thanks for having me, man. I uh, And great intro. I'm all fired up now. I feel like, it's kind of like my, my life just got summarized into a short segment, and I, and I feel like... Um, worthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everything about you is just in that one pair. No. Uh, so, I mean, we're, we're big fans of Harvest Host. We've used the program a ton the past couple of years. Actually, I take that back. We haven't used it a ton, but every time we've used it, the experience has been incredible. And I know you came on board this year about the business. So we'll get into that today. But I love interviewing people who have like interesting Google stories. So like, you know, page two and three in Google, once you get down to it, there's some really fun stuff in there. And you and I have talked on the phone a few times. I never knew you had a PBS series interviewing people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Steve Jobs, and Elon Musk. So I, I want to get into Storyblocks and, and building your company and all that kind of stuff. But like, let's start here as like a kid, 16-year-old kid, 
how did you land a PBS series where you're interviewing all these like mega successful people? <laughs> Dude, by the way, that's a really fun way to kind of start out because I'm like, my mind was racing. I was like, I've, I haven't been on page two and three in a long time. What did, <laughs> what, what did he find? Uh, yeah, as long as you don't go to page five or six, we're in good shape. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. So so I started this show called Streaming Futures when I was in high school. And, and this was ages ago, right? Like I graduated high school in 2003. And at the time, I was having a hard time deciding what to do for a career. And there were so many interesting options. I decided the best way to figure it out was to try to go ask the people who were top of their fields to just tell me, you know, what it's like to be um, an actor or a bodybuilder, you know, and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of gave us his answers or to be an inventor. Um, and I managed to get Elon Musk to sit down for an interview. By the way, I cannot find that original interview tape and it drives me nuts oh, because wow. like back then it, he, Elon wasn't Elon. Like he was, he was, nobody knew him. Um, I only knew him cause I was kind of a geek and I wish I could find that tape. I couldn't but, find it on Google either. If that helps. I know dude, I'm oh, it's, it, what a bummer, but I'll find it. But yeah, so I ended up interviewing 150 people over the course of a few years and just tried to, to kind of glean their advice for teens, uh, as we're you know going to college and, and entering the workforce. And so it was a ton of fun. Uh, and that was how I actually got into video and multimedia and ultimately started, um, video blocks, which became story blocks, uh, and now has audio graphics and video. Um, but yeah, basically I, I, you know, I was like you, I was this like passionate guy who loved creating content, but I had no budget. And it really bummed me out that you had to have a fortune to get stock video back in the day. You'd have like thousands of dollars. I had no dollars. And so uh, and so I started a company to kind of solve that. You had this idea. You want to interview really interesting people. You were 16. That's right. Yeah, I was 16. That's right. And so this was 2001-ish and YouTube wasn't really a thing yet. How did you say like, I'm going to go out and find these people? Like, what did that look like? Were you just going to be like, I'm going to video you on my Sony camcorder and <laughs> put it where? Like, where are you going to put it? Yeah, dude. So you're right. YouTube, this is crazy, but YouTube really got started in 2005. And so at this point, there was no YouTube. Um, there were a couple of video distribution websites. But one of the things that I had gotten involved with was um, some of the first webcasting on the internet. And so I was working for this nonprofit called Kids Online, where we would train inner city, uh, DC inner city kids on how to use technology. And through that nonprofit, we convinced Nortel Networks, which was a big networking company back in the day, to get us some gear. And some of the gear they got us were these um, stream genies that let you actually do these live video switching broadcasts that you'd stream over the internet. Now, it was so early that just because we could do it, like nobody could watch it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but that didn't change. We were like, you know what? It doesn't matter. This is super cool. Let's just do it. So I just started reaching out to people that I admired um, and, and just sending them, you know, cold emails, phone call follow-ups. And it took me, I mean, to get people like Steve Forbes and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Elon Musk, I mean, it took me months. It was like months of begging and pleading. And I really played the youth card hard. Yeah, right? I'd be you like, should. Hey, you should. I mean, you know, use what you got. And I was like, look, I'm in high school. I just really respect this person. Could All we need is 20 minutes of his time or her time. And we'll come on location with our cameras and we'll do the interview. And we would, so we basically set up geographic hotspots. So I would do a week in New York City and I would line up two interviews a day, two to three, um, and we would just bang them out. And we would take our crew, we had two cameras, some audio equipment, 
and we would actually go place to place. And and actually on one of our New York trips, just as a side story, two ridiculous things happened. One, we went to Forbes headquarters, interviewed Steve Forbes, and one of my questions to him, what to all guests was, you know, what is your you know, what's your one big piece of advice for young people who are looking to get into, you know, to become successful. And Steve Forbes said, pick your parents well, <laughs> which, mm, interesting. which was, he was being tongue in cheek, but, but I also had to give him some credit because he was acknowledging that he did not come from nothing. Um, but right after that, right after we finished that part of the interview, we blew out their, uh, electrical grid. Like we blew a circuit because we were pulling too much power with all of our equipment and we knocked out an entire floor of journalists who were oh, working wow. on stories. They were not happy. I mean, I've never seen such upset people. And they knew it was you. Their- Dude, they knew it was us. They just <laughs> knew it was us because we came with these big, powerful lights. So with these huge lights. So, so that was terrible. And then karma, I suppose, was later that night, all of our camera gear was stolen um, out of a garage where they, the, oh, wow. you know, someone actually came in. The valet gave them keys to our car. They took all, you know like $50,000 of the camera equipment and, and then said, no, look at the sign. It says we're not responsible for anything left in a car. I was like, Oh, this is such a scam. Oh my gosh. So was the nonprofit that you were working with kind of footing the bill for you to go out and travel and do this series kind of thing? Is that how it worked? That's right. Yep. And so luckily Nortel networks had a lot of this gear. They're a big technology company. So they gave us a budget, um, and they gave us gear and, um, and we just had a blast. It was a bunch of you know young people. We would do New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, and, and basically just pick these hot spots where we get a lot of interesting people back to back to sit down and give advice. And yeah, and that was just really cool. I remember, yeah, I mean, I just I, I met so many interesting people. I remember interviewing this guy JD Roth, who you actually remind me a lot of. Yeah, I've he met. I know JD. Yeah, dude. I don't know why the two of you <laughs> remind me of each other. He was the youngest producer in, in NBC's history. Wait, is right? it J- J.D.? Oh, maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. Uh, there's another J.D. Roth that's like in the financial online blogger space that's an RVer. Oh, oh. Okay, but there's oh, two oh. J.D. Roths. Okay. Two, anyway. two J.D.'s. I don't know He'll look this other guy up. <laughs> yeah, he, he produced all these hit TV shows at like 19 years old, and it was unheard of. And I remember asking him, like, you know, what was the hardest part about doing that? And he he basically said – ignoring all the negativity because everyone would tell him you're too young. You're not smart enough. This is a tough industry. You're never going to succeed. And he just learned how to completely ignore all that negativity, um, and continue focusing on what he wanted to do. And I think that's very, that was very powerful to me when I was younger, because I also heard all the negativity and you've probably heard it. When you tell people you're trying to build this really crazy, cool, big business, the first reaction people give you, unfortunately, a lot of times is, uh, it's been done or there's a reason it hasn't been done. And why don't you just go back to doing what you're good at, at your job? And, and which is unfortunate. So anyway, that whole series was very, I, you know, I love doing it. I hope it helped a lot of, of kids. It certainly helped me and gave me a lot of the confidence that I carried forward into um, the things that I'm doing today. Yeah. I mean, as a 16 year old kid, did you, did you just already have a really good mental direction for where you wanted to go in life as an entrepreneur. I know you say you didn't, but at 16, I just I had a one tracked mind, you know, probably <laughs> like girls baseball. And that's, that's like as big as my, I wasn't thinking about how I can go interview the CEO of PayPal or anything like that. So 
what what was kind of like your guiding thing at that age? Like you're just wanting to be an entrepreneur, wanting to be successful, and yeah, dude. No, I so you know it's funny. I mean, the 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 funny response is. Um, I wasn't very good at sports and girls had no interest in me. So I had to pick other things. Um, and, and, and that is, that's partially true. I think what's probably more true is I was just kind of a, I was a dork who loved, um, I loved technology and I just thought it was so exciting. I remember, I mean, I'll never forget in 1997 when I got my first computer on the internet and I had this epiphany that I could be literally anybody. Um, it didn't matter how old I was what color I was, you know, where I was located. All that mattered was I created a product people wanted to buy. And I got on eBay in 1997 and started selling anything that wasn't like drilled to the floor. And I got addicted to that. I just, I got truly addicted to the art of selling things that people really wanted um, and making money from it. Like I, I just, I was like, to me, business is so exciting. You can do well for yourself if you can create something that other people really enjoy. And it like, it's one of those everyone wins situations. So in high school, you know, by the time I got to high school, I was just fully in on online selling stuff. And so I was a power seller on eBay selling probably like, I mean, thousands of dollars a month in software for collecting hot wheels and, you know, th- wow. other things like that. It was just fun. And I was just, I was truly addicted to the art of the sale. I lived kind of a, you know, I was able to live a, uh, I guess I could call it a Jekyll and Hyde life. I certainly was an immature idiot in high school as well, <laughs> but I would just find time to like also do interesting things. Um, I guess I didn't watch much television. Maybe that's where I saved my time. Yeah. Were your parents pretty excited for what you're doing and supportive? They were. Yeah. They, yeah. They were super supportive. They, I mean, I give them a ton of credit for, not only being supportive, but for giving me confidence. Like when I would have these ideas as, as a little kid, right? Like I, like when I was a really, really young kid, I remember my dad taking me to go sell um, stuff. I must've been like five or six years old. I wanted to sell things in front of the community store. And instead of telling me that was a dumb idea, he just took me there and let me set up a store. Um, and we had a blast. And then when I was like 10, he helped me create a golf ball wagon where I would sell used golf balls. And to me, like as a 10 year old, that was a, I was like, I was a, a titan of industry, right? Like, <laughs> here I am, like selling twenty dollars a day worth of golf balls. This is incredible, and he let me believe that. Like he he fully kind of supported me as you're the best entrepreneur I know, and I think that was so critical. I give a lot of credit to my parents for being supportive. Yeah, no, that's that's huge. You were a power seller on eBay for a while. You did this series, and then at a certain point, you start, I guess, wanting to scratch your own itch and build your own thing. So that's when you started looking at starting Storyblocks. But it wasn't called Storyblocks. It was like Footage Firm or something else in the beginning. So can you talk me through kind of the beginning of how that all came about? Yeah, definitely. So, man, so when I was in high school uh, and I started getting involved with Kids Online, I started learning a ton about shooting video um, digitally capturing it, editing it, and distributing it. And I kind of realized that I knew at the time that I was early in this whole ecosystem of video production. And one of my hunches that in hindsight was obvious, but at the time was not as obvious, was there's going to be a day when everyone's creating content, when it's not just the big production companies or super enthusiastic documentarians. It's like all of us shooting video and distributing it online. And so this was before YouTube, but I saw it coming. I basically bought some basic um, camera equipment. I remember I bought this Canon GL2, a tripod, uh, and a and a go bag that I could put it all in. And I took a year off between high school and college to 
travel around the United States and shoot video of all the different cities or as many as I could get. Uh, the idea being, what would I want as an independent video editor uh, if I was doing something based in Texas or in Washington, D.C., and I couldn't afford thousands of dollars to pay Getty? And so that was it. I would go shoot for a few days. I'd get sunrise, sunset, all the different highlights, and I would sell it uh, on eBay at first to kind of validate the market and find the price point. And eventually I launched my own website uh, because, you know, as you were mentioning, I loved eBay, but I didn't want to be a seller on eBay. I wanted to create the next eBay, right? And and I know that, that will never probably happen, but the idea was I wanted to build my own thing. Mm-hmm. And so Footage Firm grew pretty nicely. I mean, for, for my year off, I was I was making enough money to support my trip around the country, taking airplanes here and there. Then I went to Babson College up in Boston, which is just an entrepreneurial business school. And while at Babson, I was able to really start kind of honing and refining my different weaknesses. So I didn't know a lot about finance. And I went to Babson, I learned all about business finance and accounting and marketing and, and a lot of skills that were very easy to apply directly to my business. And by the end of college, I, it was it was doing pretty well. I, I remember my senior year, I got it to $100,000 in revenue, which for me was kind of the line in the sand where I said, if I can get to $100,000 in revenue and, and pretty profitable, I won't take a job. I won't take a, an, you know, an actual paycheck. I will go out and, and give this a real shot. And how long had you been working on it? I'd been working on it essentially for five years, right? So it was that year off and then my four years through college. Now, I will say college, as you know, is a very distracting place. Yeah. And so I was um, I was actually a good student. So I went to class. Um, I was in a fraternity, so I had a ton of fun. Um, and then I would try to find time to work in between all that. And so... I, I guess, I guess actually this, this is the perfect use of the term. I gave it my best college try. Yeah. And, and so, and so it was okay. But what was really crazy to me now, and I, and I always tell college entrepreneurs this, I say, whatever you were doing by the time you graduated, take your revenue as an example, when you actually can focus full time on that all day long, where all you do is wake up, focus on your business, you will 10 times whatever you were doing. And, and that was the case for me. I, I got to $100,000 by the end of my senior year. By the end of my first year out of college, I had gotten it to a million dollars. And nothing changed other than I was able to focus exclusively on my business without all the distractions. And that made a big difference. Wow. It's kind of like having to choose sometimes about what do you want to do right now in your life? It, no, it totally does. No, it, I mean, it's funny. Man, it's so funny. It's all about finding that balance, right? Because those years after college, I had the wrong approach to balance. My idea was, well, if, if I was able to 10x my business by focusing on it exclusively, then let me just really do this harder. And I would spend you know, 10 to 12 hours a day sitting in a desk chair in an office because I thought that was necessary. Now, the business grew really quickly and it you know, ended up becoming quite a big thing. But the downside was I approached and then fully cratered into burnout to a point where I just wasn't happy. I was like, you know, I've built this great business and I'm totally unhappy with my life. What's the point? And so now with Harvest Hosts, I'm on the other side of the spectrum where I'm traveling a bunch, um, which is distracting, right? Like you said, every day it's decision fatigue, but it's also just the fatigue of actually traveling. Like driving all day is exhausting and you get to your place and like the last thing you want to do is work. And you know, the next day you have to get up and like go travel again. Um, but it's so much fun. And so 
I, I kind of went from one end of the spectrum of super burnout to I put a CEO in place of my last company, moved, uh, well, basically bought an RV with my wife. We RV'd through all 48 states. And so for the first year, we had no responsibilities other than traveling and we had a blast. But after a year, that quickly changed. It, and nothing, nothing fundamentally changed, just mentally. It went from, went from being really fun to imp, kind of empty. I mean, it was still fun, but it was like, what's our purpose? Like, we're just playing. There's no purpose. And that actually, interestingly enough, that became its own form of burnout. And so I, I realized like working too hard doesn't work, but working too little doesn't work either. And it's, a, it's just, and there's no perfect formula, but find that thing in the middle, which is where I feel like we are now, uh, is very exciting. Yeah, I absolutely agree. We wouldn't have been on the road for so long if we hadn't found like intermittent purposes to keep us on the road. Like we went to Canada this year after going to New Zealand and I didn't honestly want to go, but we got a good contract for campground booking and I was going taking photos and videos of campgrounds for our listings and it was like, okay, well, this is funding. It's for my company. It makes sense. It's going to help push us forward. But if I wouldn't have had that, I would have been like, I just want to be stationary for a little while because you burn out. <laughs> totally, dude, totally. So with so with Storyblocks uh, going backwards a little bit, you started building it up. You started getting burnout. When did RVing kind of come to the picture and how did that come about? Yeah, it, it, it came about fast and furiously. So it, it kind of went like this. That first year out, um, I got the company to a million dollars in revenue, no employees. And that was on one hand, a badge of honor, but on the other hand, pretty dumb because I was doing everything. I was working all day. I was doing customer service. I was building the website. I was not only burning myself out, but I was kind of strangling the business. And so then I hired my first employee, um, to do customer service. And immediately I saw the light and I was like, wow, like when you can hire someone to do the things that you're not that good at, uh, and then you can focus on the stuff you are good at, it is dynamite. And so I started, yeah, then I hired a marketing person, then I hired a developer and it worked. Like the business really took off. So I went from $1 million to $2 million the next year to $4 million to $8 million. And around the $4 million mark, I actually raised a uh, $10.5 million Series A. And that was an intentional move because what I realized was I'm young. Um, I don't know a lot. I know a lot about some things. Like I know a lot about the video world. I'm pretty good at marketing and advertising, but by no means do I know anything about leadership or building a real like $100 million company, which was my goal at the time. And so I raised this funding to bring on partners and that turned out to be a great move because they helped me put in some incredible executives. And we ended up, you know, today, today we have a team of about a hundred employees and we'll do around like $40 million in revenue. And so all of that was would never have been possible if I had not gotten out of my own way. Now, fortunately, I think I would have stayed in my own way if I hadn't burned out. And so it was around the time that I was getting into that fundraising where I was like, man, I just am not loving this anymore. Like, and actually one of the tests that I think you can do at home, <laughs> I call it a snooze test. Like I used to wake up and actually I do now, like I wake up at like 7.30 in the morning and I'm fired up. I'm ready to like get out of bed and go do really exciting stuff. And that's how it was when I first started the company. But at the, you know, around the burnout stage, I was snoozing the alarm and waking up at like 11 a.m. And I didn't want to get out of bed. I just wanted to keep sleeping. I was exhausted. And I don't think it was actually like physical fatigue. It was just mental fatigue. And going to work was a chore. 
And I hated that. And so that's what prompted me to accept taking funding and selling part of the company. And then once I did that, I realized, wow, this is quite liberating. I was really choking the company for growth. Now we have all these great people and more capital behind us. And so around that time, and this is how it played out, I think it was October 2013, a buddy of mine got married uh, in Manassas, Virginia. There happens to be an RV dealership, Rainus RV in Manassas. And I had driven by it a number of times, always romanticized about this idea of just getting in this RV and taking off, <laughs> right? Like there were, I mean, honestly, it was like every day I was driving to work towards this burnout phase. I wanted to just drive by the exit and keep going because I lived in Washington, D.C. area. And if you drove past my office, you'd an hour and a half later, two hours later, you'd be in Shenandoah, mm. right? Shenandoah National yeah. Park in some of the most beautiful parts of the country. And so every day I was like, I just want to keep driving. I want to go to those mountains and I want to just sit among the trees. And at this wedding, the day, I guess, either before or of the wedding, I had some downtime. I grabbed a couple friends. We went to the dealership. We walked through some RVs. I found a reflection by Grand Design. It was the first year they'd ever made it. And I loved it. I was like, this thing is beautiful. It's practical. Um, it's affordable. I'm doing this. And so after the wedding, Mary Ashley, now my wife, and I went back. She approved of it. <laughs> and I signed on the, I literally just signed on the dotted line. It was such an impulse purchase, but, but impulse with like for years, I'd romanticize this idea of like hitting the open road and being free. And then we bought it. And then, then that was the big question. It was like, sometimes you romanticize things that aren't reality. In this case, it was spot on, man. Like once yeah. we got, like, I just love it being on the, we've now RV'd through all the 48 lower States. That sense of freedom of the road is so, so powerful. So you hit the road, you have company that's doing well, several employees, you're in the middle of fundraising and kind of in this time, you're like, also guys, deuce out. I'm just going to go travel in this fifth wheel for weeks on end. And that was scary, right? So, so the, my mental model in hindsight was all wrong, but my mental model at the time, and actually it's funny in hindsight, it looks very, it seems very arrogant. I thought that I was much more important to the business than I was. I thought, well, if I take off for a week in this RV, everything's going to fall apart. I'm going to come back and things are going to be on fire. People are going to be burning. Like it's going to be madness, which is ridiculous because we had really great people. Uh, I mean, a good product and everything was fine. So I started slowly. I did like a weekend trip and then I would expand that into like a long weekend trip. And then I remember I did a full 14 day trip uh, around the South and nothing fell apart. And if anything, it was similar to what I had found when I hired my first customer service employee. When I was out of the office, people really picked up the slack and did a lot of things better than I did because they weren't burned out. They were excited. Mm -hmm. And so, so it was a very cool experience to see that I was not as important to the day to day as I thought. And I was able to actually take off. And, and, and I think, you know what I was most worried about? I was worried about employees resenting me for being out having fun while they were working hard. But that didn't happen because they liked their jobs and, and they gave a lot of credit to the founder for the hard work that you know I'd done building it. So so it all worked out well, but man, was that a mental hurdle. Yeah. There's also, I, I guess, I only worked in the tech startup scene in Austin for like a year. By the way, did you see my Skype message before we jumped on? I don't know if you yes, saw that. Yes. You, <laughs> you guys used, it. you earned it for, I saw that in an interview. Yeah, you earned it. Yeah, I used to work there. Anyway, yeah. uh, there's kind of this mindset that... It, 
you have to work as hard as the CEO too. So it almost like gives probably your employees the opportunity to take a step back and say like, I'm going to get some, I'm going to take time off if I need it. I'm not going to kill myself. So going back to your time at Storyblocks, why do you think you had burnout? Just because you were working obscene amounts of hours and didn't have any balance? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, you, were trying you to know do what, everything. Um, but at this point you had already kind of hired out. So like you had taken the load off, but you're still feeling yeah. that sense of burnout. So because there was this, I think there's two things in play. There was this prevailing mentality that I bought into, which was if you really want to succeed, you need to work so, you know, much effing harder than anyone else. And so I would show up, you know, early in the morning and I would leave at like 10, 11 PM at night. I would just work all day long. And, and, and it was a badge of honor in one way, but what it was doing was totally isolating me from a social life. And I had all these, you know, all my friends were going out during the week and having good time and uh, going to trivia night and, you know, going out to bars. And I did none of that. I, I completely skipped all of that to work. And that catches up with you. I think, I think if you isolate yourself from a social network for too long, you burn out. And, and I understand that now. And there's a lot of studies that show that now. I didn't understand at the time. I thought I was a hero for working so hard. And I wasn't. I was just setting myself up for failure. So you transition out of your role with, with Storyblocks. Do you still do anything with the company now? Yeah. So I'm still the executive chairman. I, I kind of see myself as a go-between between our management team and our uh, board of directors uh, and investors. And I have no day-to-day operation. I try to help wherever I can. And then we have monthly board meetings that you know that I, I lead and I'm a part of. But no, it was it was kind of a full transition out. And and I'm it's funny, man. Like maybe this is I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs listening and, and you are, are see this in your life. Like we tend to be very like dramatic people. I mean, like we're we're like we're binary. Right. Like, so for me, I was very binary. So when I was at Storyblocks, I was working way too hard. So what did I do? I stepped out of Storyblocks and didn't work at all. I went to the complete other end of the spectrum. Yeah. And, and it was again, like really fun at first, but then after a year, uh, I started floundering because I didn't have a purpose. And so now I've kind of swung the pendulum, fortunately into the middle, not back into the opposite direction. So with Harvest Toasts, I'm having an, I'm having a blast. I'm working a lot of hours, but I'm making sure to really maintain a social group, right? So I'm still um, seeing friends all the time, traveling to be around people, and I won't make that mistake this time. So this time I'm going to work hard, but I'm going to keep my social network intact. Totally. And I gave a brief description of Harvest Host. If you have never heard of it, basically it's a website. There's an app as well, right? Harvest Host app that you could check out. So hundreds of locations across the country. You could stay on farms, wineries for free. You pay 45 bucks a year, 50 bucks a year, something like that. And and then you can stay at all these places for free and roll up somewhere after a day of driving your RV and grab a bottle of wine or something like that. We honestly joined... This is a bit of side tangent now. We're just talking about Harvest Host, but like we joined thinking like, oh, we're going to save money. We end up spending more money with Harvest Host <laughs> just because yeah. uh, we'll, we'll buy, you know, two bottles of wine somewhere or we will. There's a really amazing one in sh- near Shenandoah. We met this amazing guy who worked for the CIA who started this winery. It was a really cool story. 
or we'll like go to a microbrewery and grab a meal or something, but uh, it creates cool experiences on the road and we get to meet people. So talking about that social element, like that's been one of the things yep. that I, I love about Harvest House. Honestly, forgot even where our conversation was going because I got really sucked into that rabbit hole for no, a minute. No, but like, you know what though? I think that so, that, so on the social element, that first year that Mary Ashley and I traveled the US, all 48 states, had a great time. We love each other's company, but it became a little bit lonely because we didn't know anybody else. None of our like none of our old friends were RVing, so we didn't have people we were going with. And campgrounds can be kind of quiet. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Like I've never met anybody at a camp. I mean, I've met a lot of nice people at campgrounds. I right. I'll start there. A lot of the most amazing people I've ever met are RVers. Yeah. That being said, I've never met and developed a long-term friendship from a campground in 5 years of staying in campgrounds. Correct. It's, it's usually like a quick, like, hello, how are you? Love your dog. Like, have a great day. And it's funny because you're, you're packed shoulder to shoulder. You're like five feet away from another RV and there's like 200 people around you. It's, I guess it's like being in a city where there's tons of people around you, but you can feel socially isolated. Uh, and then we found Harvest Toasts and had the complete opposite experience, which was you roll up and you get to know the proprietors a lot of times. So like this guy in, you know, in Virginia, I don't know if it was Mountain Cove Vineyards, but that was uh, one of the places we went and met the, he was a former, you know, like a retired uh, military guy who had just moved to the mountains in the seventies and built uh, Virginia's oldest, you know, first winery. Oh, wow. And you get, yeah, and you get to know people like that and it's super fun. Uh, and so some of, I now have really good relationships with a number of the hosts that I visited, husband, wife, you know, wives, teams running wineries, people running interesting attractions. And yeah, it's not socially isolating. It's very exciting to roll up and actually meet people that are engaging, um, you know, and, and doing interesting things. So looking at what you went through with Storyblocks and what you're now focusing on building with Harvest Host, what are some of the things that I, I know you talked about? not being in isolation, not killing yourself, having a social life and how big that is. What are some other things that you're going to do different that you didn't do with Storyblocks that you want to do with Harvest House? When I started Storyblocks, you know, originally footage firm, then video blocks and Storyblocks, it came out of a desire to, you know, fix a personal problem, of course, which was stock media wasn't affordable. So, so I think that's a great way to start a business. And that's what I love about Harvest Hosts. It solves a problem that I had on the road as an RVer. Uh, I wanted unique places to stay that weren't camp, you know, not always campgrounds or parking lots. Now, the second thing though at Storyblocks was once I started building the business, to me, it was this like academic exercise like I learned in business school, which is just keep growing and growing, always double the business, grow, 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 do whatever it takes to turn this into like a billion dollar business, like growth at any expense. And part, you know, part of the downside of that was some burnout. Um, I think we made some poor decisions product wise. I don't think our customer service is always as good as it could have been because I was too focused on the monetary aspect and not on what we were trying to build. So with Harvest Hosts, I'm taking a completely different tact. I think that monetary success uh, and growth and all that will come as a byproduct of making sure we're creating something that truly like, you know, truly delights our members. And, and, and it's funny, it's like, it's the same, like at the end of the day, it's kind of the same thing you're accomplishing, but it's just a totally flipped inverse way of thinking about it. At Storyblocks, I was thinking, I want to get to, you know, 40 million revenue. How do I work backwards from that? 
at Harvest Toast, I'm thinking, I want to help like tens of thousands of people find true happiness and freedom on the open road like I have. And when we can do that, the money will follow. That's like the biggest difference. Uh, and I think this company is going to do really well um, financially, but I'm not going to make that the top priority. And with uh, Storyblocks, you guys had an in-person office. Do you think that uh, Harvest Host will stay remote? Do you guys, is it just you right now? Or do you have, I know you have some contractors and stuff, but are you, do you have other employees other than you? Yes. So I, yeah, we do. We have, we have um, about five of us and we're spread all out. Uh, so our, our head of customer service, Lisa, is in Kentucky. One of my primary developers is actually back uh, in Virginia. So we're spread, uh, my, my designers in Canada. So yeah, we're all over the place. And I like that. I'm actually excited to keep this as a distributed business. Um, you know, who knows what the future holds, but I love, I mean, you know, the company 37 Signals mm -hmm. that created Basecamp, right? They, they built a very meaningful business and they're fully remote. Uh, so it's possible. Um, and I think that it's uh, it's great. So no, and, I, and and by the way, especially for this product, it's fun when I'm in my RV working from the road, and I know that um, uh, uh, you know one of our developers that you introduced me to, Brendan, he's in his RV redesigning our website right now. Mm -hmm. So it's neat knowing that we're not only creating a product for RVers, but a lot of our employees are RVers, and we're like we are our you know our customers, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And I, so I just, as you were talking, I had an idea for like team retreats. I'm sure you've already thought about this, but like you guys should have a quarterly, maybe not quarterly. That's too often twice a year team retreat at one of the harvest. I mean, you have 600 locations. Any of them would be cool places yeah. to like go on a team retreat, go to a winery. You Dude, know what I mean? Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah, totally. We, um, yeah, we just, we just added a host, uh, train mountain where it's the largest I forget the scale, but they're they're train they're like little trains that you ride in. So you like pop out of the trains. <laughs> That'd be the greatest team retreat. We'll take our little trains and we'll ride around the whole property. <laughs> oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. Great I, team building right there. I think one thing that's really interesting talking about this and and it doesn't just apply to Harvest Host, but I thought a lot about it with our conference and our friends Kara and Nate, who hosted like a big Vespa tour in Italy this past summer, they're YouTubers. Just talking about how like where business is going is around like experiences and how those are going to be like more and more relevant for like our generation because we're very connected digitally but in person we don't get those experiences so it's like when you're finally around people in your person you're in real life you're like oh this is what it really feels like to be connected to people and be around friends and and you can't replicate that easily versus like there's so many digital products there's so many blogs there's so many podcasts like that they're kind of a dime a dozen but if you can give somebody an experience in real life like that's yeah. not going out of style and i think those businesses are just going to keep doing really really well so that's what makes me excited for what you're doing dude I, and i agree so <laughs> for all the things the millennial generation is doing wrong and we're a part of it so we can talk trash about it for all the <laughs> for all the stupid you know, style and all the dumb selfies and like self indulging behavior. I think one thing millennials have gotten right is this idea that spending money on experiences is better than spending money on goods. And, and that's spot on. And again, there's been so many studies now done that show experiences create happiness, not new cars or fancy houses. Uh, so, you know, right now our, our harvest host membership base tends to be a lot you know, it tends to scale older, right? But we're starting to now see younger 
uh, people in our generation buying travel trailers, airstreams, making schoolie buses, uh, conversion vans, and they're loving the Harvest Host program. So I hope, you know, as, as I push this forward, we start to have a really even distribution of both our parents' generation, retired, enjoying our country, but also young people who are not retired, but still know that they can go out on a fun road trip and experience our country. Absolutely. I love it. What kind of RV do you have? Like the wrapped one for Harvest House, by the way? Yeah. So it's a, um, a, a Reflection 303 RLS by Grand Design, 2014. Yeah. And we wrapped it, fully wrapped it in uh, nice. Harvest House branding, which was, it wasn't cheap, but it totally <laughs> turned out to be worth it because- yeah. Every time I pull up to a traditional campground, people come out and ask me about it. And I swear I've sold more than $4,000 worth of memberships from it. <laughs> worth it. Worth it. So as you're traveling around in your Grand Design fifth wheel that's wrapped and building Harvest House, how do you define success and what you're doing? Man, so, so a year and a half ago, I was kind of in this place where I was adrift and a little bit lost because I hadn't been working for a year. I'd been having a lot of fun, but it started feeling pretty empty. And I didn't know what I wanted to do next. And, and that's a really scary feeling, like when you don't have a purpose and you also don't know how to find your purpose, uh, it wasn't a good feeling. And so I sat down and I, I tried to pretty much figure out, I mean, I actually had a journal. I was like, what is my purpose in life? And it turns out that's not an easy question to answer at all. So I couldn't just sit down and figure out a purpose. So I tried to put a framework around it. And the framework that I came up with um, is what I call the headstone test, which is, you know, one day I'm going to die, and when I'm buried, you know, there's going to be a headstone on my grave. What would I like to say? And that's kind of nice because I'm like, all right. So it makes you, it forces you to think about death, uh, which puts life in perspective. And there's only so many words you can put on a headstone. And so what I came up with roughly was, you know, here lies Joel Holland. He he loved life and hopes he helped others love theirs a bit more as well. And, and I like that because at the end of the day, I really do have a very blessed and fortunate life. I have a ton of fun and I see a lot of people who could be having fun, but are just too you know burned out or stressed out or not enjoying life. And it's sad. And so I think with Storyblocks, we were selling a product that helped people be creative, right? Like, and I think creativity is a, is a great gateway to happiness. And with Harvest Hosts, we're selling a product that helps people get off the couch and onto the open road. And as you know, it's kind of hard to be unhappy when you're traveling because it's just, you're seeing new things. There's all this new stimulus. It puts your life in perspective. You see good stuff, you see bad stuff, but at the end of the day, you feel free and, and it makes you happy. So I'd like to think that with Harvest Hosts, I'm helping more people enjoy their lives a little bit more. Uh, and, and I like that. I love it. That's a great uh, definition of success. So where can people connect with you and learn more about Harvest House? Yeah. So to connect with me, um, LinkedIn is the best. Uh, if you go to joelkentholland.com, it just forwards to my LinkedIn profile. Um, just say, you know, say you heard me chatting with Heath um, and, and we'll become friends. Uh, and then Harvest Hosts is just harvesthosts.com. Uh, it's a $49 a year membership. Uh, and that gives you access to over 600 wineries, farms, breweries, distilleries, and museums all over North America, not just the U.S. I love it, man. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Heath. Appreciate you having me. 
Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to that episode with Joel. Uh, if you enjoyed it, want to learn more, check out Harvest Host, give them some love, go to harvesthost.com. Again, I can't recommend their membership program enough. Like if you want a cool experience when you're on the road, Harvest Host is awesome. And one thing that I heard from somebody is the reason why they hadn't signed up is they thought you actually have to work there, which you totally don't. You just show up, grab a bottle of wine, buy something from the business that you're staying at, and you can get 10% off if you use the coupon code RVENTP10 at checkout. You might have to listen to this a couple times to get that coupon code, but it's RVENTP10 at checkout. And that is the number 10 at checkout. Thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast and for this episode with Joel. Really enjoyed it. I will see you guys next time on the RV Entrepreneur Podcast.